Good morning. I got 1017, so let's let's get started. Y'all can feel free to get some coffee at any time. Get up. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We ask that you would bless both its reading and the teaching, Lord. That you would take what is given to us in your word and make it real. Make it uh, inspirational. Make it uh, help us to love you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. We're starting Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Why Matthew? Why Matthew? Yes, Deb? I was saying because he was very, very. He and. Yes, Deb said he's bridging the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and he is uh, and he is very meticulous. That is that is absolutely true. And you're um, you're you're almost in a sense getting ahead of me. I mean, that's you you know it. That's that's right. Any other answers to why Matthew? The answer to why Matthew, at least from my perspective, is that's what I felt like we were supposed to do. That was pretty much it. I was like, what should we do? And I just, Matthew was the only thing in my head. Nothing else would come into my head. And so I figured that is from the Lord. Um, I want to just cover, and I think you probably know this, but I want to cover the gospel versus a gospel. That's real important. A gospel is a type of literature. There are four of them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are all Gospels. The Gospel is the good news. The message of God's grace that Jesus died for our sins and that our salvation is a free gift. It is not earned. It is, he has done the work for us. That is the Gospel. It is the good news. It's important to distinguish when someone says, I'm preaching the Gospel... Uh, sometimes what they mean is I'm preaching from Matthew um, or, or John or, or, or something like that. But um, what we want to mean is we're preaching the good news. And the reason that, uh, that both of these things got the name, the gospel, is because the word in Greek, euangelion, means uh, the, the good message. Uh, you, hear, you hear the word angel in there, messenger. You means good um, Euangelion, the good message is the pro. It, it was intent. It was originally simply. It was a secular term when uh, Rome, just for instance, or Alexander the Great, or whoever it was, had an incredible victory. They didn't have the internet, so they had to go around with town criers from town to town, and they would tell them the good news of this great military victory, this great new victory, or if a new king ascended the throne, they would go around and tell him the euangelion, the, this, the declaration, the good message that uh, there was a new king. And so, when they were trying to decide, well, what is this literature that we've come up with, this, this retelling of the history of Jesus? And they said, well, it's the proclamation there's a new king. It's a gospel. It's a euangelion. And so, but I just want to make it... Um, so we understand both definitions of the word gospel. That it is a gospel, 
is the type of literature in the New Testament, but it is the gospel is the proclamation of good news. So all four gospels, obviously, are a presentation of this new king, and yet it is St. Paul who primarily is the one who uh, teaches us and interprets the events of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and shows us that those events are substitutionary and atoning. In other words, that his sacrifice counts for you and me and that he paid the price that you and I deserve to pay. That he took our place as substitutionary and atoning. That Jesus' life is not a mere example. He lived a good life and so should you. But they, his, his life is vicarious and purifying for us. So does that make, make sense? Are those seminary words? You got you tracking. Okay, good. Y'all are, y'all are smart. All right, so we need both, right? We need the events of Jesus' life. We also need the interpretation um, to know what that, those events mean for us in terms of salvation. So it is impossible for me to teach Matthew without also teaching Paul and Peter and John, you know, in the letters. This is all uh, interpreted for us. And one thing you need to know as we begin this study, as one thing you need to know and, and really appreciate is that ancient literature... And ancient authors had different priorities than modern literature and modern authors. Uh, modern biographies are linear. So if you read a biography, let's just say Teddy Roosevelt, last biography I read. And it was a while ago. And, um, and so the biography is going to start at his birth and is going to work through the events of his childhood and then of his teen years and then of his education, and then of his ascendancy into politics, and uh, and his foray around, uh, running around uh, out west, and, and so on, until he becomes president. It's gonna, it's just gonna go from A to B to C to D all the way through. That's it. And and precision is really important. If Teddy Roosevelt gave a speech, and um, he's not gonna put that in in his childhood, just to make a stark example. He's going to put it right where it happened. If he had another speech that said basically the same thing, he might. he's not going to conflate those things. However, ancient authors actually felt free to conflate. And they, had, um, uh, they grouped things together in order to make their point. For instance, the Gospel of John shows Jesus going back and forth from Galilee to Jerusalem. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke never show Jesus in Jerusalem until his death. It is a movement from Galilee to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus was a faithful Jew. He surely went to Jerusalem annually in order to, um, uh, in, in order to worship, to make sacrifices and things. It's just that what he naturally did. But for the point that these synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are, are making... They're moving from the periphery into the center. They're moving from the boondocks into the big town. Right? And so that's, um, so all of his teaching, you might have, you might notice that if I'm reading the Gospel of Matthew, I've got this long, concise sermon. It's not concise particularly, but Sermon on the Mount. But if I'm reading Luke, I have bits of the Sermon on the Mount sort of sprinkled throughout. Why is that? Well, Luke needed it in a certain 
place and felt free to do that. He wasn't being dishonest or disingenuous. He just had different priorities than we have in modern times. So, um, so that's, that is uh, sort of how that works. Does that make sense? So it is, it, it is linear in the sense that we first have his birth, then we have his life, and then we have his death. But it's not linear in the sense that they care a lot about making sure the speech comes in the right order. They're making points along the way. That makes sense? Okay. So what is it called if it's not linear? What's it called if it's not linear? Uh, I, I don't, it's not, it's not circular. Um, thematic. Thematic. It's thematic. Next time, just ask Josh. Well, uh, I mean, that's, that's not like an official word I would write it down. Yeah. It's like some, you know, it's, they group things by themes. You know, what goes together, what seems to make sense together. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, finally, the last thing I want to say before we get into the text is that Matthew is often called the most Jewish of the Gospels. Have you ever heard that before? Have you ever heard somebody say that Matthew is the most Jewish of the Gospels? What, what, what might they mean by that? Anybody want to take a stab at that? You, you won't get pegged for being a, not being PC, I promise. <laughs> the, the intended audience was the Jews? The intended audience was the Jews? I think certainly. Certainly it was. Anything else? Writing from his perspective as a Jew. Writing from his perspective as a Jew. Well, uh, yes. I, you know, Luke probably was... Yeah, I, I, I have to go through all of them. I'm not exactly sure. But I think you're probably right about that, although he had been a tax collector, and so he was a rogue Jew in that sense. I really think she hit it earlier when you were talking about the, the link to the Old Testament. He's the link to the Old Testament. So one of the central themes of the Gospel of Matthew is fulfillment. Fulfillment. That is, that you're going to see that from the very fifth word uh, in the Gospel all the way through the gospel, but especially in these early chapters, fulfillment. Everything that God has shown us in the ancient Hebrew scriptures, from creation to Abraham to Moses to David, the prophets, everything is working to culminate in Jesus Christ. It's all moving to Jesus. And so it's all fulfilled in Jesus. This is to fulfill what is written. We see that over and over in Matthew. Or something like, this is to fulfill the words of the prophets. Or as it is written. We see that over and over again. And I, in fact, I believe I didn't count it up. But I think it's 14 times in the first like four chapters. 14 times. So over and over again. And we see, although Matthew doesn't say it overtly, we see things that draw our eyes, especially to the Jewish audience, draw our eyes to Jesus as the new Moses or the greater Moses. As the new David or the greater David. Uh, and in fact, the new Israel and the perfect Israel makes allusions. Now, not illusions. It's, it's real. But, but allusions to these things. Alright, so we get to this. I said we get to the, um, the sense of fulfillment in the fifth word of the gospel, which is genealogy. Right? Genealogy. So... Uh, the word genealogy is a good translation, but the word, the actual Greek word is, anybody know? Genesis. Genesis. And 
In other words, all the work that God has been doing up to the, po- the point of the life of Jesus, from the very beginning where the Spirit hovered over nothingness, this is the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. From creation to Abraham, from Abraham to David, from David to the exile, from exile to Jesus. So that's the pattern of the genealogy. Now I can remember in college one time, I was trying to get someone to read the Bible. Zealous little boy that I was. And I said, just, she said, I don't even know where to start. Just start with Matthew. You don't even need to read the first 17 verses. Like just skip the genealogy. Which was probably good advice because you just read. I mean, is there anything more boring than reading a genealogy in the Bible? When, when you're like reading your, through the Bible and you get to First Chronicles, you're like, oh my gosh. Three days of just reading genealogies and you're just scanning for a name that you could pronounce, much less that you recognize. You know, like, it's, I recognize, it's, it's boring. But actually, what we're going to do for the next two weeks is we're going to look at genealogies. I've never done this before. I'm actually really excited about it. Um, and it's and before you run away, just give me a chance, okay? Just give me a chance. So I'm actually I'm going to read the passage you have it in front of you. The first six verses. We'll cover the rest next week. Unless somebody else wants to read the names, anybody? Wouldn't want to take the fun. I appreciate that. All right, the book of the genealogy. Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, who was the king. Now what I want us to see in two weeks in the genealogy, it's going to be a repeated thing, is that the, this is the line of the Messiah. But it is anything but morally or religiously pristine. We have a bunch of characters in Jesus' direct line. And in fact, something else that's unusual that you might not expect from this Jewish Messiah is that we have a lot of non-Jews, and particularly women. We have five women listed in the genealogy, three that I just read, and two listed uh, later on in, in next week's passage. And it was very rare, you can imagine in that patriarchal society, it was very rare for, uh, for them to talk about women in a sense of, of who, what their lineage is. And yet, Jesus is for everyone. Not just for the Jews, but for everyone. Not just for men, certainly, but for everyone. And so we want to see uh, that we have a very broad genealogy uh, for Jesus. Alright, so we begin with Abraham. Now let me say this too. Luke has another genealogy, and it's like completely different. <laughs> it's completely different. Again, they had different, I mean, you know, that many generations, they could, they could find different paths. Um, 
Matthew starts with Abraham and works to Jesus. Luke starts with Jesus and works all the way back to Adam. Matthew makes a big deal about there being 14 generations. Like this, like, uh, it presents this almost like it's a miracle. 14 generations from Abraham to David. 14 generations from David to the exile. 14 generations from the exile to Jesus. Y'all, he skipped a bunch. <laughs> he, he, precision was not the point. The point was God is in control. And so there are actually 14 generations listed here. It is more likely, as we'll see, that he skipped some, and if some, I'm not even sure how Rahab matches up with the father of Boaz. But um, that's okay. We're gonna, we'll, we, we have to be comfortable with that. Alright, so Abraham. Abraham, he comes to us as Abram. And, uh, and he really takes up Genesis 12 to 25. One of the big narratives in the book of Genesis. It's the beginning of the family. We just had this 75-year-old childless moon worshiper uh, in uh, Ur of the Chaldeans, which is uh, roughly a little, e- a little west of Iraq. It not, not a, you know, it's not where you're going on your next vacation, you know, right? And, um, but we see, especially in Romans chapter 4 in the New Testament, also Hebrews chapter 11, that in many ways Abraham's name is synonymous with the concept of faith. And, and, and in many sense, rightly so. Because all of a sudden you have this guy who just, what, you know, he's just looking at the stars and the voice of God calls out to him and says, I want you to pick up and move away from your father's homeland to the land of Canaan. He says, all right. And God says, in fact, I'm going to uh, make you the father of many nations, and through your line, all nations of the earth, all families of the earth will be blessed. You know, that is, the, that is a, an incredible covenant promise that has its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And it's part of what I think Matthew was getting at, showing us such a broad genealogy. Through Christ, all families of the earth. We wouldn't be here today, most of us, if Gentiles weren't part of the family. And so we, um, we are being shown that. But, but that was the first promise. That the blessing was intended to come from Abraham's line for everyone. And so, 75 years old, no kids, you'll be the father of many nations. Great, let's get started, right? And then... He had to wait for 25 more years for Isaac. Now he got impatient and made Ishmael with uh, Sarah's servant. Um, and, and Ishmael is not the son of the promise. And God uh, did bless Ishmael. We see that. But, um, but he says that no, Isaac is the son. But he had to wait and wait and wait and wait. Until his wife's 90 years old. And he's 100. Listen, I just turned 47. I don't want any more babies. <laughs> but Abraham wasn't pristine either. He, made, he had his blunders. Twice he said uh, they were traveling because of famine or whatever. They had to come to this other land. He told the king of the, you know, it was like a provincial king. He comes in. He's got some crops. He's got some wealth and stuff. But he says... This is my sister talking about his wife. Sarah gets taken into the harem. 
at like 85 years old. Like, that doesn't sound like this is very safe, you know? But, and then of course God protects them and stuff, but he does it, and he gets rebuked for it, and he does it again. It's really hard to believe. And yet, when God says, take your son, Isaac, when he's like 100 and, I don't know, what, 14, and he says, take, take your son Isaac and sacrifice him. He says, all right, let's go. It's, just, it's really, it's mind-boggling. I don't think that people have tried to make the case that, that Abraham was actually wrong to try to sacrifice Isaac, but he just simply believed that God was going to take care of it, which God did. So Abraham is the first, yet Ishmael, uh, we're still fighting those battles today. Um, that was probably not uh, faithfulness, although God did put his hand upon him. And, um, and, he, and he was put his wife in danger a couple of times. But they had Isaac. Isaac was promised in Genesis 17, right before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Born in chapter 21, dies in chapter 35. But really, he, he's really not that important to the story. I mean, he's got to be there, but we don't know a lot about his life. God did speak to him directly. Um, but he's the miracle child, right? Born to the 90-year-old mother. And, but he had a tough childhood because dad put him on a uh, sacrificial altar and put a knife up in the air. That's going to do some damage, I think. And, and, and in fact, he's not a very good father. Uh, he he uh, strongly... Uh, favors one son over the other, Esau. He maybe has twins, Jacob and Esau. And Esau is the hairy one, and uh, Jacob was a smooth man that uh, stayed intense. It's like the worst insult in the Bible, I think. It's just um, he was a mama's boy, and Esau was was a tough guy, and he uh, ran around killing animals and making up uh, gourmet meals for his dad. And uh, and so Isaac really favored Esau, and. Um, and in fact, he, Isaac repeats his father's dangerous sin by uh, telling a provincial king that Rebekah is his sister. And, and Rebekah, same thing, gets called into the harem and taken out. Isaac was faithful, and God was good to him, uh, but he wasn't spe- spectacularly moral by any stance. In fact, you remember how angry he gets. I really don't, I have to say, I still don't understand why when Jacob takes the blessing, that um, he can't say... He can't declare that that was um, that it was that it can't be revoked and given to Esau, but that it's like, it's like a commodity. Like it, once it's given, it's been given, and there's no. I, I don't really. I have to say, I don't really understand that. You, know, you may have some insight on that, but um, but he, Isaac wasn't spectacularly moral. Then Jacob was born uh, with twin brother Esau. Uh, Genesis twenty-five to thirty-five dies in Genesis forty-nine. Um, the name Jacob means he cheats. <laughs> or he grasps the heel. And, and we see, especially early in his uh, adult life, young adult life, that he, he tricks Esau into getting the birthright. Basically, he says, uh, Esau comes in from the field and says, I'm so hungry. He said, well, I've got this stew here. If you give me your birthright, then you can have it. He said, well, what gives a birthright if I'm dead from starvation? And uh, so he says, sure, you can have the birthright. And again, I don't really understand how all that worked, but, but uh, Jacob held him to it. Um, and he was a lot like his mother, too, because his mother was the one who came up with a plan to take the, the blessing. And, um, 
and put you know put the goat skin on his arms. I mean, Esau must have been a really hairy guy. Uh, if goat skin was a good substitute for his blind father feeling, uh, but uh, you have to go back. I mean, it really is, is marvelous reading. Uh, if you haven't read Genesis in a while, but he, he tricked his father, he tricked his brother. He was a cheater, um, and then so Esau's going to kill him, and and, and Isaac's going to let him because he he took the birthright and he took the the blessing. He flees and he goes to his uncle Laban, and, and uncle Laban he meets his match, and that's where he he sees his beautiful cousin. I guess it's all right in those days. And he falls in love with Rachel. He says, oh, I worked for seven years to marry Rachel and seven years for his buddy day because, because he was so in love with Rachel. And those days they got married in the middle of the night and it was dark and he wakes up the next day and it's not Rachel, it's Leah, her ugly older sister. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes to Laban and he says, what in the world? After you promised me Rachel. I said, well, I just said it wasn't, you know, you'd be better than somebody else. And, uh, and um, what a scoundrel. And so he says, well, I'll work for another seven years if you just give me uh, Rachel. So he marries Rachel and he has to work for another seven years. And then he ends up having with Rachel and, um, and Leah. And Leah is, is the one that is scorned by both. I mean, it's not a real good idea. Not a real good idea to marry two people at the same time, but really not a good idea to marry sisters. And so... Uh, they, there was a little tension uh, in the household, and um, and but he ends up having the twelve sons with um, Rachel and Leah. Leah particularly, because Leah. And there's a beautiful story. You can make a beautiful story of grace. Leah was outcast, but she was the one that was fertile. Rachel was the one who was favored by the husband, but not favored by God initially. She does have uh, children later on, but uh, Leah has. Uh, Judah is one is the fourth, and um, and she names her sons in in order like now maybe he'll love me now maybe he'll love me like it's a really um, but finally uh, Judah is um, this time I will I will bless the Lord it's it's a it's a really it's a really sweet thing he has um, children with their servants that come along with the marriage as well twelve sons uh, in all so. Um, so, and Jacob, when he goes, he's, he's leaving Laban. They, they, he says, I've had enough. He takes all his giant family and they leave. He tricks him and he, they leave. And he, he hears that Esau is coming out to meet him. And he's terrified. Esau is going to beat my tail just like he did when we were kids. And so he sends all these gifts, all these just, just fabulous gifts ahead of him. And Esau finally comes to him and he's like, Man, that was a long time ago. Like, let's just eat and drink and be merry. And Jacob says, great idea. I'll come by your place tomorrow and goes the other direction. <laughs> Jacob, if you remember, is the one who wrestles with God uh, in the middle of the night by the Javak River and his uh, hip gets put out of place. So it's, it's a really interesting story as well. Um, but Judah is really, it's, it's amazing to me Judah is the favored territory, you know, like all through in, in David, the land of Judah and all this. Um, but Judah is really, again, a, a peripheral character in the Joseph narrative. Joseph was the favored son. Joseph is not the line. He's the one that goes to be on to be like the, the prime minister of Egypt, but he's not 
particularly, um, he, he doesn't have the Messianic line. Judah has the Messianic line. With Tamar. And I'm going to read to you Genesis chapter 38 because this story, I think, is stunning. Stunning in the fact that God would say, this seems like a good idea to have my, uh, have my messianic son. Chapter 38. At that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near uh, an Adulamite named Hirath. And there Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. And he took Shua as a wife and slept with her. She conceived and gave birth to a son. And he named him Ur. Creative name, really. <laughs> she conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to another son and named him Shelah. It was at Hazid that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law. Now Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. Tough in those days. And then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife. Perform your duty as her brother-in-law and produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released his semen on the ground so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. What he did was evil in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. When Judah said to his daughter, then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah, Shelah it grows up. Not Shelah, that's different. Shelah. For he thought he might die too, like his brother. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had finished mourning, he and his friend Hira the Dulamite, and that's who we moved next to in the beginning, went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance to the town, Anium, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought, that she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. So he went over to her and said, Come, let me sleep with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Then <laughs> she said, What will you give me for sleeping with me? And he said, I will give you a young goat from my flock. <laughs> <laughs> Deal. <laughs> But she said, only if you leave something with me until you send it. What should I give you, he asked. She answered, your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. Deal. <laughs> so he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. She got up and left, and then removed her veil and put on her widow's clothes uh, again. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get back the items that he had left with the woman, he could not find her. He asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was beside the road at Enium? 
there's no, been, no, been no cult prostitute here, they answered. So the Adulamite returned to Judah and said, I couldn't find her. And besides, the men of the place says there is no cult prostitute. Judah said, let her keep the items for herself. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. So he recognizes this is probably a little uh, untoward. After all, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. After, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has been acting like a prostitute, and now she's pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said, and let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, he sent, she sent her father-in-law this message. I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. <laughs> and she added, examine them. Whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these? Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her intimately again. Now, she has twins, Perez and Zerah. And these are the ones, they have an interesting beginning as well. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. And she was giving birth. One of them put out his hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread around it, announcing, This one came out first. But then he pulled back his hand, and out came his brother. And she said, what, this translation says, what a breakout you have made for yourself. Most translations say, what a breach you have made for yourself. We had a breach child, but only one, thankfully. So he was named Perez. When his brother, then his brother, who had the scarlet thread tied to his hand, came out and was named Zerah. Old Testament, man, that's strange. Strange, good stuff, very strange. So, God could have protected the sons of Judah, but he did not. He could have made the Messiah come from one of the other 11 sons, but he did not. He gave incredible favor to those who had not earned it. Tamar was the daughter of a Canaanite, a Dulamite, and not uh, even, so not in the right line. She wasn't in the right family. She was an outsider. And Jesus comes from her line. Now, if you were so inclined to get the genealogy from the son Perez to David, you could go to 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verses 5 through 15. It is exhilarating reading. Um, one thing that is, is interesting about this is that we hear that um, Boaz, that his mother was Rahab. Now Boaz, if you remember is the one who married Ruth in the book of Ruth. This beautiful story about the kinsman redeemer. But Rahab is a prostitute. And if you remember, Rahab is the prostitute in Jericho. After 40 years Moses, uh, in the desert, Moses dies, Joshua's in charge. And Joshua sends spies into Jericho, and Ray, they go to Rahab's house, and she hides them because they weren't very good spies, and they got reported. And so they, um, they were coming to look for them to kill them because they were afraid of this giant nation that's camping out across the river. And, um, and we've been to Jericho. It's not far from the Jordan River. You could, you could look out from there and see that there's a massive nation coming our way. And they have spies. And so she hides them. 
And when Jericho is destroyed, she is saved for her faithfulness. Now again, she's from Jericho. She's not in the right line. She's a prostitute. She's not morally uh, pure by any means. It is the Scholars are befuddled because there's no other Rahabs mentioned in the Old Testament. But it seems like Rahab would probably be way too early for Boaz, who was, um, uh, the, who was David's great-grandfather. And that just seems like there's not enough time. I mean, by the tune to you know, 300 years, not enough time. But it seems that, I mean, there's not another Rahab, so it seems that that's who Matthew has in mind. But she's also not at the right line. She's 400 years after Tamar. She's a resident of Jericho. But somehow, she's faithful to the Lord's purposes. She, rather than protecting her own people, she's good to the Lord and, and His will. And so she's rewarded for it. Now we also see Ruth. If you've read the book of Ruth, it's four chapters. It's really wonderful. Ruth was a Moabite. She was a, a woman, a widow. And who knows, if you, if you read it, who knows what happens on the threshing floor with Boaz. She goes down to the threshing floor and... Um, and Boaz is drunk, and she uncovers his feet, and he wakes up the next morning and says, that was fantastic. <laughs> My seminary professor was adamant that nothing happened because Boaz was a righteous man. I'm not buying it. And I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be risque. I just, I just uh, I'm not buying it. What, I, what the point here is that if you were designing and we're going to see this. I mean, it's going to be the same point next week, but please come back. The, uh, that if you were designing the line of the Savior of the world, you would, you would do a better job than God did. You would keep it pure. You would find the morally upright. But God takes the broken. And out of that line makes a Savior. And I think that is... Stunningly beautiful and gracious, and in fact, incredibly comforting to a sinner like me. So that's really what I want to say. Just is it's astounding that their mistakes and their unfaithfulness do not disrupt the plans of the Lord. How many times have you uh, thought, "Oh man, I've blown it"? <laughs> like your mistakes are not going to mess up God's plan. So let's say I mess up something at this church. I hope not. Gosh, I mean, I've made mistakes. Don't get me wrong. But I hope nothing bad happens. But it's not going to mess up God's plan. God's going to take what he's a redeemer. He makes good out of bad. I don't know how he does that. It's one of my favorite things. But their mistakes do not uh, disrupt the plans of God. And I hope for you, like for me, that is really, really gospel good news. Amen? Amen. All right. Hey, four minutes. Got any questions? <laughs> yes. Okay. I don't have a question, but is it not true that he was a net word feet or what was a euphemism in the Bible? Yes. Uh, they are, there is a euphemism uh, in the Bible often that feet uh, means genitalia. And um, so uh, that's, that's several other places. I don't necessarily need to go into it, all of them. But, um, but yeah, that is... That is uh, that's what most people think. So he, um, she uncovers his feet, and he says, that was great. 
I'm <laughs> Maybe my professor knows. is more knowledgeable than I. Maybe he I know, know. Bobby Joe. I would say if I was Ruth, I might say what happens on the threshing floor stays there just like in Davies. Yeah, well, you know, that's uh, it was a similar similar environment, the climate, you know, there for the threshing floor there. Uh, yeah, uh, I would say you wish. Uh, you know, like she's. <laughs> It, it, we're, we're talking about it uh, 8,000 years later or whatever it is, so yeah, it didn't stay there. Um, yeah, but, but, I mean, again, if, if, which is what I think likely, that there was uh, some uh, uh, inter intercourse on, on there, God still, like, it, it didn't mess up God's plans. Like God, God still is faithful. To, he doesn't, and, and it's not that what we do doesn't matter. What we do matters. Like, you should live a righteous life. And yet, our unrighteousness is part of how we know God because that's what gets healed. And so that, that's, that's such grace. Yeah, Josh? Which of these guys would have been like during the time of Moses or around that time? That's a great question. Um, you think of whoever, uh, Solomon maybe, because or right before him because yep. Rahab well, you, I mean, it was 400 years from Judah to Moses, 400, 415 years. And that seems like a pretty short <coughs> list in the genealogy. The whole, the whole list seems way too short. Yeah, no, I agree. And scholars agree. And so, yeah, it's probably, you know, Aminadab, Nashon, Salmon, somewhere in there. But, that, you know, just as equally as, you know, impressive that it's not the line of you know, it's the line of Judah, kind of one in the middle, nobody's out of the 12. It's also not the line of Moses. Right. You know? So, like, the next biggest character in all of the Old Testament, well, you know, top three, right? You know, between Abraham, Moses, and, and David, those are the big three out of the Old Testament. Yes. It's not Moses. Not Moses. Either. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He, he is, you know, the prophet's prophet, and yet he is uh, not, the, not the one of the line. He's a, he's a Levite, actually. Uh, yeah. Moses is. Moses and Aaron. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a great point. Moses was not in that line. Um, but if, if Sam was the father of Boaz by Rahab, then Salmon uh, would, Salmon would be um, in that second generation out of Egypt so that he would have been a, um, that would make Nashon Moses' contemporary. But who knows? Not me. Yes? The mother that determines whether you are a Jew, which is interesting if, they, if, his, if he has mothers who are in his line who are not Jews. So Charlotte says that, that she believes that Judaism was handed down by the mother. And I'll only say that the, this, the resources that I looked at said it's very unusual for a genealogy in that patriarchal society to include women. Yeah. But I, so I, I don't have an answer to, to that observation. Um, I know, that, you know, guys often leave it to the their wives to do the religious work in the house. So maybe, maybe that was maybe they passed. I don't know. But that's not good, by the way. Yeah. All right. Anything else? If you haven't been to church, go to church. If you have, go get eggs. Go to peace. We'll see you next week. Bye.